right, my favorite thing to do is an actual poll. Who likes to be surprised? Let's see him. Okay, this is good. All right, here's the thing, and I don't mean to be a nitpicky person, but there is a difference between a surprise and being shocked, yes? Okay, because I think being shocked, we call that a prank. Okay, so I, I do like surprises, but I do not like pranks. All right, so let that be known. I don't like when someone unexpectedly giving me ice cream, love it. Unexpectedly jumping out from behind something, not cool. Do you see what I'm saying? Unexpectedly, you know, a friend comes into town, love it. Unexpectedly, somebody takes your towel while you're showering, not cool. Like, you see what I'm saying? But some of you still think that's cute. Raise your hand if you're a prank person, right here. Raise your hand, nice and high. Okay, Pastor Steph's not a prank person, but those people are. So direct your energy towards them, and that will be good. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having those conversations. We love getting people talking and having conversations. And uh, welcome to anybody who's maybe here for one of the first few times. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here. We're grateful that you're here, and we hope you got in a conversation with, with somebody here from Mill City. We love to get people connected with our mission to love our community in the name of Jesus. Uh, and we, we are in the midst of Advent season. I love Advent. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, I love being able to, to celebrate all that God has done. But as we think about surprises, when we think about this idea of being shocked and all of that, um, we can have a fun conversation about being surprised and a fun conversation about pranks. But at the end of the day, some of us look back on this year and there were some surprises that were not so great, weren't there? I know a lot of your stories. I know that a lot of us look back on this year and there was a surprising amount of pain. There was a surprising amount of plans that had to be changed. There was a surprising amount of twists in the plot in maybe what we were hoping for. And what I love about the Christmas story is that it is a story full of those types of challenging, unexpected experiences for everybody, almost everybody involved in this story. And so as we continue our month-long countdown to one of the most unexpected moments in history, which I would say is when the God of the universe decided to become a human, that has to be one of the most unexpected things that ever happened. The God of the universe, as Eugene Peterson put it, put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That is an unexpected moment. This season where we count down to the birth of Jesus we call Advent. And if you're not that familiar with Advent, it simply means arrival. Arrival. It's the arrival of Jesus. We know the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. People were waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to arrive. But what I think is so cool about the season of Advent is this. It's also a time when we not only think about the first arrival of Jesus, but the second arrival of Jesus. Historically, that's what Advent has been all about. Recognizing that we live in between two Advents. The first Advent, unexpectedly, where Jesus the Messiah comes as a baby king. And the second Advent, where we await Jesus' return, where he's going to restore all things and make the wrong things right. And all the pain and the sorrow and the unexpected things that are hurtful will be gone. That's what we're looking forward to. We're longing for that. And I know that this season is a beautiful one to think about that no matter what type of year any of us have had. So remember this, Advent is about how we're really in the middle of two arrivals of Jesus. Two arrivals of Jesus. We live in the in-between of two arrivals of Jesus. And so in this time of Advent, here's what we're looking at. We're taking a close look at how the days leading up to Jesus' birth, God showed up in unexpected ways in unexpected places, at an unexpected time, to some very unexpecting people. That's what we mean by unexpected. 
And all the people who we share talking about these different characters in the Christmas story, uh, they're different than us, but there's some things we have in common. And one of the things I think we have in common is that God broke into their life unexpectedly, and God breaks into our lives in unexpected ways. And just like that story of Christmas, the unexpected ways that God broke in was amazing and painful and confusing and shocking and surprising and everything in between. And in my experience, that's what it's like when God breaks into my life too. (laughs) There's amazing parts and painful parts and confusing parts and everything in between. Uh, When God breaks into our life, there's ways in which we recognize that we're in that in-between time of the two arrivals, don't we? All the things that are wrong have not been yet made right. Yet the God of the universe has already come to be with us. This is an encouraging yet kind of messy middle space that we find ourselves in. So today we're going to look at the story of one, I would say, pretty surprised and maybe shocked character in in the story of Jesus' birth. And that is uh, Mary's fiancé, Jesus' adopted dad, Joseph. Can we just think for a minute about how that guy maybe was wondering about whether or not he was being pranked? Right? We'll look a little bit closer at this story. I think this guy would be wondering if he's getting punked in this story. But I want to start actually at the very, very beginning, okay? The beginning of of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Jesus' disciple, his version of the story of the beginning of Jesus breaking into the scene. And what's interesting about the beginning of Matthew is that it's also the beginning of the whole New Testament. So hundreds of years had happened where people did not feel as though they had heard this direct word from God. And then Jesus breaks into this scene and we see the beginning of the New Testament. And I want us to go to Matthew 1 if you have a Bible or if you have an app. And I want to just look at the very first sentence of the entire New Testament. Have you ever thought like really focused on that for a minute? Let's just look at this very first sentence of the entire New Testament. This is being written to a very specifically a Jewish audience Matthew is writing to. This is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what's so interesting to me about this first sentence of the whole New Testament is that right there in that sentence, you see the entire story of why Jesus came. Trust me, you do. You see it right there, but it's maybe a little bit difficult for us to see, so let me break it down. If you're a first century person from a Jewish background, this is what you would have seen. Jesus, meaning God saves. Messiah, which means the anointed one of God. Son of David, meaning the king of kings. And then son of Abraham, meaning this is somebody who's come for all people because that was the promise to Abraham that Abraham's family was going to be a blessing to all families in the world. And so what I want to suggest today is that here we see this phrase, this is the genealogy of Jesus, but let me add maybe like a contextual phrase. The first sentence of the New Testament is, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed savior and leader of all humanity. The anointed savior and leader for all humanity. That is the the first sentence of the New Testament. Do you see how Jesus' life and mission is so clear right there? And this genealogy of Jesus is listed. I'll put it up here on on the screen. Now, I'm not going to read it all. You're welcome. Unless somebody wants to, we can take a poll. No, we won't. We won't read all of it because it will just be a lot and I will butcher some names and I'll feel terrible about it. But can I point out two things that I find interesting? Uh, Sometimes here at Mill City, we call this seminary for everyone. Seminary is pastor school, but you're all smart people. So here's some two fun things that I learned in seminary about the genealogy of Jesus. You ready? First thing is that here, this specific genealogy, you'll notice at the bottom, it's split into these, these sections of 14. Do you see this here? Go back to that last slide. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, hold on here. Who likes riddles? Anybody? 
We got a couple of riddle people here. If you like riddles, this genealogy is a riddle. It's a math riddle. Math, okay, it's fun. And so here, look at this. Uh, when, you, when you take the name David, which is Dalit Vav Davit, Dalit in Hebrew, the, the letters of, in, Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, the letters of the alphabet in Hebrew also corresponded with numbers. And so the name David, King David, was adding up, as you can see here, it added up to 14. And so this is not a mistake. This is not like a happenstance. Like Matthew's being very specific and trying to make a very clear statement that this, this king, this Messiah, this Jesus was coming from the line of David, which would have been very important to that Jewish audience. And so it's like having this math in the middle of this math riddle right here. It's like on a marquee uh, that Matthew is trying to say to the Jewish people, Jesus is from the line of David. Jesus is from the line of David. It's a big deal. It's like this big kind of sign. That's what's happening, okay? So I think that's kind of fun. Uh, the second important aspect of the genealogy that I want to bring up today, of course, there's many other things, but that is just looking for the four women in the genealogy of Matthew. We see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. All four of these women are either not Israelite women or they're women who were connected to non-Israelite families people who would have been considered outsiders ethnically. And not only is it unconventional for Matthew to have women in a genealogy that are traditionally male, they'd all be male, these particular women are all associated with potential sex scandals. So Matthew's genealogy is a riddle and it's a scandalous one. All right, do you see this here? And I love how we can point out that maybe you could have had Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or one of these matriarchs who, you know, sometimes were celebrated without paying attention to some other things that happened. But instead, Matthew names these women who some people would say were women of shame. But by putting them in the genealogy of Jesus, what is he doing? Elevating them as important parts of the story. Look at this quote from the Bible Project. Matthew wants his readers to see that God has been using all types of people to move his plan forward. This portrait of an inclusive and expanding God, an inclusive and expanding kingdom, will continue to appear beyond Matthew's genealogy into the rest of his gospel. He will continue to include the rejects and the outsiders into Jesus' family, into the family of God. You can see that in Matthew 4. And this non-Israelite strand in Jesus' family history will expand even wider and wider until the final commission where Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. Complete inclusion. That's where we see the trajectory. This genealogy starts it, and it goes throughout the book of Matthew. But when we reach to this point where Joseph comes into it, you've got this pretty well-known list of, of Jewish leaders and people and folks that people have, would have known. And then it gets down to the end of the genealogy in verse 16, and it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph is like a nobody guy, okay, from kind of a podunk town, and so he is not expected to be the person that would be here in this genealogy. And then it continues on to see his story, and it's certainly not expected that Joseph would have been here in this moment in this story. So let's read his story, and I want you to pay attention to what, how much would have been unexpected in this story. I'll start at the end there, right there in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she had given birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph is thrust into this shocking experience. It was certainly unexpected in literally every form. And so the angel opens with the phrase, do not be afraid, right? Because Joseph most certainly was terrified. Uh, Terrified of this whole situation, terrified when you see an angel, everything about this would be scary in understandable ways. He's just a normal person, like any one of us, experiencing God break into his life in a way that he would have never experienced and never imagined. No one would have imagined this. And like many ways that God breaks into our lives today, I'm sure Joseph woke up from that encounter and thought, was that a good surprise or was that a shocking prank? Can you imagine waking up from that dream and trying to make sense of what you had heard and what you had experienced prior to the dream and now what in the world are we going to do? So was this a good surprise or a prank? I think it was something else entirely. As I look at the story, I see that Joseph was invited into the deepest most unexpected purpose that any Jewish man would have ever imagined. Can you imagine this with me? Nobody at that time would have ever thought, what I want to be when I grow up is the father of the, the adopted father of the Messiah. Like that was not something anybody was thinking about. Yet this is the purpose that God has for Joseph. God gave Joseph unexpected purpose. That's kind of what I want us to take with us today. To think about the purpose that God had for him and others in the story and the purpose God has for us in our lives. God gave Joseph unexpected purpose, a powerful purpose, but here's the reality. That purpose came with unexpected pain and shame. That purpose came with an unexpected part in the story of God that that, that he never would have imagined. That purpose came with unexpected changes of plans again and again and again you'll see in the story the plans change. And so I just want to talk about those three things because I actually think a lot of us resonate with that when it comes to our stories. We resonate with pain and shame that comes in our life. We resonate with being a part of God's story in ways that are confusing sometimes. And we resonate with our plans being changed, don't we? So let's just talk about this. When it comes to unexpected pain and shame, we look at Joseph's life. He's going to be the father of the Messiah. No one would have ever dreamed of that. But that too was in an unexpected way, right? through adoption. First, Joseph has to go through this very unexpected pain of assuming that his fiance had gotten pregnant from another man. You see in the story, that's what he assumes. And so that means he has to figure out what he's supposed to do about that. That would bring a huge amount of shame upon his family. Uh, In this first century context, particularly in the East, it was what many would call an honor and shame-based culture. Some of you might come from cultures like that. And what that meant was that when you brought any honor to your family, it was a big deal. And when you brought any shame to your family, it was a huge deal. And so here we have Joseph caught up in something incredibly shameful in his life. The first century betrothal period was a big deal, okay? It was very official. It was usually about a year long. And it was likely that Mary and Joseph were in an arranged marriage. 
all right? This is first century culture. They had maybe met when they were engaged, but then most likely it was kind of a conservative space. They would actually not even see each other for that whole year. They hadn't gotten to know each other yet. We need to remember that this story is a first century Jewish cultural betrothal. It's not a Hallmark movie, okay? So if you're like, oh, mm, and you have the same feeling when you're watching a Hallmark movie as reading like the Mary and Joseph, not the same, okay? Not not necessarily value statement on either. I'm just saying, let's make sure we're thinking about the cultural context of what's happening here. A man in this culture was expected to respond harshly when something like this would happen. The idea that your wife has cheated or something has happened, I mean, it could be a penalty of death. At the very least, it was required to break off the engagement because that was a signed agreement between two families. This was a legal agreement. That's why the word divorce is so clear here. This is a, a, a breaking of this, this covenant, of this commitment. And he was required to do this publicly in what many people would say would be an intentionally shaming moment. You know, cultural, all cultures have some pros and cons and things and that, this and that. In that culture, that would have been the expectation. And so when it says that Joseph decided to divorce her quietly, what that meant that he was already pushing it with what his expectations were. And it also meant that his family would not receive the bride price back that they had offered to the family of Mary's family. That meant that it was something in which his family had saved up in order to prepare for his future that he would not get in return because that was only possible if that shaming happened in public. This is what was part of that culture at that time. And so you have to recognize that when he decides to trust the angel and to stay with Mary, we cannot make the mistake of recognizing that that shame would still be present, wouldn't it? And the confusion and the pain. It was deeply shameful for Mary. We talked about that last week, even dangerous for her. But it was shameful for Joseph and his family too because no matter how that baby got in there, there was a baby on the way, right? And, and similar to today, I imagine there were people who were doing the math from the wedding day, right? And it's cute and it's a little funny, but what is that? When people do the math from the wedding day to when a baby is born, that is about judgment and shame. That's what it is. And so in this context, I'm sure that was part of it. And so no matter what, God gave Joseph unexpected purpose, but it came with pain and shame no matter what that angel said to him. That was the reality. Secondly, God gave Joseph unexpected purpose through him playing an unexpected part in God's story. Again, Jesus, Joseph is the father of the Messiah through adoption. Uh, first century adoption, not the same exactly as what we have experienced today, but when we look back at first century Jewish adoption, uh, there's a moment in the story that we just read that is the moment of adoption. Did anybody catch it? The moment of adoption is in verse 25 when it says, Joseph, he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. For a father who is not the biological father to name a child, that moment was the legal action of adoption. And so we see highlighted here this adoption story. And, and it says, right, even what the angel said, Joseph, son of David, you are to give him the name Jesus. I know that in our reading of that story, we might not see this, but a first century Jewish person would have heard the angel saying, this baby is the Messiah, and after he is born, you are to adopt him as your own son, thus importantly, entering him legally into the line of David. That's huge. 
And while there's debate on whether or not Mary was also from the line of David, let's not miss that in the first few paragraphs of the whole New Testament, it's elevating adoption beyond a legal transaction into a deep and profound spiritual reality of family. And not just any family, the, like a royal family. And even though Joseph was probably terrified, he said yes, and he adopted Jesus. And we can now clearly see in verse 25 that that's what he did. And he gave him the name Jesus, which we could just read as, and Joseph adopted Jesus as his own son. God gave Joseph a pretty unexpected purpose through a pretty unexpected part of the story. And then finally, God gave Joseph unexpected purpose through, I would say, a repeatedly unexpected change of plans. Or at least like the hope of the plan. You know, when you think about, well, what's your plan for your life? Of course, I can't ask Joseph and Mary what their hopes were for their life. But I can imagine knowing that context, that the plan or the hope was to marry a nice Jewish gal and live a quiet life. All right? Let's not, once again, this isn't a Hallmark movie. They're not going to the big city. Like this is probably not his goal, okay? And the reason I say that with some confidence is that we need to remember that Mary and Joseph are from an oppressed people group living under a pretty oppressive regime. And so honestly, the best case scenario is that you get to live a quiet life where nobody takes advantage of you, where you aren't forced to do things that you don't want to do, where people don't take from you in ways that allow it so that you are fully anxious all the time to know if your needs are gonna be met because that's what it meant to be a Jewish family in this context. And so his hope, I think, his plan was to marry a nice Jewish gal and to live a quiet life then it certainly was not the plan to find out she was pregnant and you weren't the father. But now I guess you are the father, adopted father. The plan certainly was not, okay, maybe I need to divorce her. Wait, I'm not going to divorce her, but people are going to assume that we are both behaving badly. That was not the plan. It certainly wasn't the plan to be forced to travel over 80 miles with your wife who's pregnant probably by foot or some equally uncomfortable transportation to have to have this census. Why did you have to have this census? Because the deadly oppressive and Ro the Roman regime wanted to count all their loyal subjects. That's why. That's why there was a census. It wasn't because it was like ten, every 10 years. Because if you were a, an oppressive regime, you said, I'm gonna show people my power. I'm gonna force them to go to their hometown. We're gonna count their heads so we can show how powerful we are compared to these other regimes so we can have, and I'm, this is it, bragging rights. This is why they had to do this. It certainly was not the plan. It certainly was not the plan to adopt this baby and then to have to, to be displaced and eventually to be a form of an asylum seeker because this tyrannical king, Herod, is on a killing spree. That wasn't a part of the plan. And we won't even get to the details of how Herod murdered people in his own family because it's like joy candle week or something, but look, I didn't put these things in the Christmas story, okay? Like, that's just what's in here. It wasn't the plan to have to run from a killer. It wasn't the plan to go down in history as the father of the savior of the world, but nobody writes a song about, Joseph, did you know about you? <laughs> like, that's not a part of the plan. And like, public service announcement, like, Mary did not know, Joseph did not know, the angel told both of them so they knew, song can be canceled. Somebody's offended. I'm sorry. God gave Joseph unexpected purpose through unexpected pain and shame, 
through unexpectedly being a part of God's story in a way that maybe he wouldn't have signed up for. Through unexpectedly having to change his plans again and again and again. And I think about the deepest longing that we have in our lives. Um, I've talked about this before. I think God wired us for belonging and for purpose. So I believe Joseph had that wiring and wanted that and Mary. And think about how deep of belonging it was to be announced as a part of the family of God in such a significant way in that genealogy. Talk about some significant family belonging and significant purpose to be the adopted father of the Messiah. But the reality is that it was super challenging. And, and the reality for us between the two arrivals is that we, we struggle, don't we, to find that belonging and that purpose in our life. We struggle to see that through the pain and the suffering and the shame and the confusion. Because in between these two arrivals, we're waiting, we're eagerly awaiting for this arrival where God's going to restore all things. I know I am. But that's not where we are yet. And when I think about the brokenness in this world between the two arrivals, it means there's a struggle for purpose, there's a struggle for belonging. But even though Joseph was just a regular guy, God had supernatural purpose for him. And even though we are just regular people, I believe God has purpose for us, specific purposes for our lives. But just like Joseph, whether we signed up for it or not, that purpose sometimes means in the middle of these two arrivals that it comes with pain and shame and parts of our story that we did not expect and sign up for and changes of plans that we did not mean to have. Do you see these in your life? Unexpected pain? You look back just on this year Unexpected shame, just like with Joseph. It's not because of something he did, but people are heaping the shame upon him. Some of us can resonate with that. Many of us face shame for declaring that we follow Jesus, just like this is what Joseph was trying to do, to be a follower of what God was saying in this challenging way, arguably one of the first followers of King Jesus. We've experienced the unexpected plot twists in our lives, right? Where, you know, you think back to last January and you're like, did God not see my vision board? Or like, where was that? Like, we had plans. <laughs> and the plans change. And unexpected happens. And sometimes it's a good surprise, but oftentimes it's confusing at best and very challenging for many of us. In between the two arrivals, we might want to skip the pain and go straight to the purpose. I think that makes sense. But that's often not an option. It wasn't an option for Joseph, and it's not an option for us. Pur purpose means that things are going to change and things are going to happen and even the best changes mean loss and loss is always painful and hard. This is what I mean when I say we can want purpose but you can't get to it without going through the pain in some form. And I want to say that like theologically, in my opinion, and you can have a different opinion than me, but I'm not one of those like everything happens for a reason people. I'm just not, sorry if anyone is. But here's what I do think is true. God can make meaning from everything that happens. Do you see the difference? Everything happens for a reason. I'm saying God can make meaning from everything that happens. And I have seen God's redemption in my life that purpose can come from pain if we're willing to surrender it to God. But I've been in places in my life, and maybe you're here today, where you just think, look, the type of pain that I'm dealing with right now, there is no way that there's purpose in this. And instead of telling you today, no, there is, what I want to tell you today is God can handle it if that's how you feel. 
If you feel that you look at the things that happened in this last year, or these last few years in your life, and I know not everyone's there, but if that's where you are, and you say to God, I can't even picture how purpose could come from this, let me tell you, God can handle that lament, and God's heart is broken when your heart is broken, and that's the truth. But I also believe that God is ready I just picture Jesus with open arms ready for us to come with the surrender of our story and saying, God, I want my story to be a part of your bigger story. Because the truth is, is that our stories are a part of God's bigger story. Every part of our story is a part of it. The amazing parts, the painful parts, and everything in between. So I'm going to invite Pastor Ashish up, and here's what I want to do. I just want to take a few minutes of reflection. It's, what, December 11th today? In my experience, it just gets faster from here towards the end of the year, am I right? Woo, just picking up the pace. So this might be your last five minutes <laughs> to just chill. I hope you find some other ones, but here, here it is for you. I just want to have a time of reflection. And I want to lead us through a spiritual practice that I've been learning about. Um, it's a practice of surrender, and it's from Ignatian spirituality, or, or St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was a Spanish priest in the 1500s. He experienced a lot of, of pain in his own life. And it's called the, the prayer of indifference and detachment. The prayer of indifference and detachment. Now that can seem kind of strange, but let me just explain it. Indifference and detachment, it means to be detached enough from the things and the people, the experiences in your life, to be able to say, I see these things, and do these things bring me closer to God or farther away? And if they bring me closer to God, then I move towards those things, and if they are things that do not move me towards God, then I'm able to keep them at a healthy distance, a healthy detachment. This is an important posture for us to be able to have. Can we take those things up or lay those things down? Because at the end of the day, we're able to have the, the indifference or the surrender to say all of the things in the world are God's. Everything that I love, everything that I'm confused about, everything that I'm struggling with, all things in this world belong to God, not to me, including my own life, the lives of the people that I love the most, they're not mine. Nothing and no one belongs to us. Every person, every good creation belongs to God. Our very lives belong to God. You and me, we belong to God. And so this prayer starts with some reminders that I want you to reflect on, and then a prayer that I'll read over you. You can either read them on the screen or close your eyes, whatever you want to do, whatever posture you want to take. But let's start with these reminders, and then we'll move to this prayer of uh, St. Ignatius. I have worth apart from any of the things or people in the world that are present or absent from my life. God loves me as I am, with all my talents and quirks and failings. I am enough for God, and God is enough for me. When God's love is at the core, of my identity, then I have the capacity to love no matter what I'm facing. Just dwell on those for a moment. I am enough for God, and God is enough for me. From those reminders, we can take a posture that we come to this prayer. Let me read it over you. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, 
You have given it all to me. And to you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. And I'm sure that was not the exact prayer that Joseph prayed as he woke up from that dream, but I think it was the posture. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think an angel is going to visit any of you in your dreams during this Christmas. But if they do, like, tell me about that. That'd be really cool. But this Christmas, I do wonder. I wonder if you could ask Jesus to bring purpose from your pain. Or maybe just show you how he already is bringing purpose from your pain. And this Christmas, I wonder if you could just take that shame that you feel and be curious about that and say, where did that come from? Is, that, is this something God wants from me? How can I give this shame over to him? To live forgiven, to live free. And this Christmas, I wonder about what it would look like to make the daily intentional choice to surrender to Jesus and to say, all I have is yours. I am yours. I need your grace. I need your love. And some days we need to pray that prayer multiple times. Jesus did everything necessary to show us through coming to this earth, but living this life, giving up his life and coming back to life. He did everything necessary to make it possible for us to live forgiven and free, to live as people who are surrendered and loved. And so whether or not, as we sing this song, it's just a, a surrender song, it's a prayer. Whether or not this is a, a prayer you've prayed many times to surrender your life to Jesus, or whether it's been many years since you've truly trusted him, or whether it's the first time you said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this surrender thing. No matter what it's like for you, it, I've, just, I've heard thousands of stories, thousands of surrender stories. It changes everything when we let go. And so as we go into this busy few weeks, let this be your prayer. And if you're not sure you can pray it yet, let the words wash over you. As we go into this time of worship, let this song be a song that shows us what it might look like to surrender and invite Jesus into the pain, the sorrow, the joy, the amazing things, and everything in between.